Hello and welcome to Restitutio Offscript. I'm Sean here with Dan and Rose, and today we're looking at the subject of scientism, and we're looking at how this idea is so bound up in our culture and what Christianity has to say about it. So to begin with, let me define scientism. Scientism is the idea that the kind of knowledge gained from the scientific method is superior to all other means of acquiring knowledge, if there are any other legitimate means. In other words, scientism exalts empirical data and analysis over everything else, over intuition, logic, emotion, and certainly revelation from God. Scientism really permeates our culture in so many ways. People deify science itself and and look at it as being infallible and because of the reputation, if you will, that science has, there's a sort of view of science as being impartial, unbiased, infallible, and just true and right. It's definitely not, I don't think, as a monolithic good as people believe it to be. I agree that there's a lot of reverence in the culture for the scientific community, and very few of us would actually call ourselves scientists. But we like to hear what scientists have to say. And I've seen memes on the internet that say, scientists have proven that people will believe anything scientists tell them. I, for one, don't really want to do all that thinking to verify it. So if I hear, Mm. you know, from something that seems legitimate in the scientific community that such a thing is true, I'm inclined to believe it without any second guessing. I guess we think of scientists as, in a sense, the new priests. You know, they're the ones that wear the white lab jacket and have specialized terminology and who speak authoritatively to the masses. <laughs> Going to some uh, sort of holy of holies. Nobody questions their dogma. What was that, Rose? They go into some sort of holy of holies in their lab coat and come back with uh, stuff to tell us. Right, right. And so the, the, the holy text is not an ancient book, but a method of gaining information. In philosophy, we call this epistemology. Mm. That's the study of how we gain knowledge. And there are different theories about that, but scientism is the idea that the only kind of knowledge worth talking about is the kind of knowledge gained through the scientific method. And just briefly, the scientific method is when someone devises a theory and then comes up with experiments that involve data collection to either prove or disprove the theory so that they can come up with a robust explanation for a phenomenon that will have universal applicability. And basically it's the idea of coming up with a hypothesis and then testing to see if it's true or not using experimentation. Well, and the scientific method gives us a lot of good things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Science has given us a much better understanding of how the laws of physics work, for example, than we had before. Everything in science and healthcare, and especially, it's very easy to kind of point fingers at people's ignorance during the Middle Ages when they had all these ideas about how to treat things, and I don't know if it was based on superstition or something that worked once. It's certainly in the case of uh, like George Washington, when leeches were used um, to try to drain out the bad blood, pseudoscience for a long time ended up killing people um, when it was more based out of superstition or, um, or flukes. 
when they moved into something that they could verify scientifically and started doing taking the scientific method um, to come out with reliable outcomes. We made great advances, certainly in healthcare. One of the interesting things about knowledge gained from the scientific method is that it is value neutral. And so let's say somebody is a racist and for whatever reason they don't like Irish people. I can't honestly understand why somebody would be that way. (laughs) (laughs) But anyhow, let's say they're racist against Irish people and they do an experiment to determine the charge of an electron, they will still get the same answer as the person who's not a racist against Irish people. So that's the advantage of science is that it's a way of getting knowledge that is objective. Right, without being swayed by all of the fallacies and different degrees of of thinking that humans bring into the equation. Mm -hmm. It's a baseline, a neutral. Yeah, and the scientific method doesn't care what you're going to use the science for, whether you use it for something good or you use it for something bad. And it's universally applicable such that you could do an experiment in a cave in Africa or on a mountain in Pakistan and still get the same answer. I mean, that's the cool thing about science. And we've built all our technology upon that. So at the heart of it, the scientific method is in the pursuit of truth. And certainly as believers, with our own sort of Berean approach to studying the Bible, we agree with with that pursuit of truth, not to follow your bias, the truth that you construct, but the truth as it is. All right, let's talk about some of the downsides of science, some of the problems with science. And even as I say that, I think there are probably some people out there that would say, wait a second, there are no downsides (laughs) to science. Science is the greatest gift to humanity we've ever discovered on our own but there are some significant problems with the scientific method and science in general and that is that because science does not have any value-based system as part of it it can easily find itself being used to violate human rights i don't know if you ever heard of any of the experiments of Dr. Mengele in the during the Nazi rule of Germany but he would do experiments on twins how basically the same person because it's the perfect example of a control right <laughs> yeah it's pretty sick he would torture women and men to find out how they would react he would just do horrible things to people all in the quest for scientific knowledge and you know we had eugenics in America where People were forcibly sterilizing the handicapped in the early 20th century. These are just a couple of examples of what happens when we use science independent of a value system that cherishes the value of human beings. Yeah, I mean, in the 19th century, you had phrenology. It was an identifiable form of scientific inquiry where a scientist would look at the shape of a cranium and by that determine whether or not you were an intelligent person. And obviously it was deployed racially. Mm. So the cranium of an African-American uh, is clearly not as developed as the cranium of an Anglo-Saxon or you know what have you. And it was used to form social policy to oppress an entire people group. But that in its day was science. You remind me of the title of Charles Darwin's book called on the origin of species by the means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. 
and the whole racist movement that ended up coming out of Darwinism, known as social Darwinism, that ended up fueling the genocide of all kinds of different people groups during uh, World War II and in other times as well. I came across this um, this writing by a guy named Jeremy Rifkin. He's an older, I guess he's an economic and, and social theorist. He wrote a critique of the scientific method. He said, the scientific method is an approach to learning that has been nearly deified in the centuries following the European Enlightenment. Children are introduced to the scientific method in middle school and informed that it is the only accurate process by which to gather knowledge and learn about the real world around us. The scientific observer is never a participant in the reality he or she observes, only a voyeur. As for the world he or she observes, it is a cold, uncaring place, devoid of awe, compassion, or a sense of purpose. Even life itself is made lifeless to better dissect its component parts. We are left with a purely material world, which is quantifiable but without quality. The scientific method is at odds with virtually everything we know about our own nature and the nature of the world. It denies the relational aspect of reality, prohibits participation, and makes no room for emphatic imagination. Students, in effect, are asked to become aliens in the world. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's like unmasking uh, <laughs> something that on his face appears like a clown, you know, smiley and happy and colorful. Mm -hmm. And then you wipe off the makeup and you're like, hmm, this yeah. guy's got some flaws. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you remind me of this Richard Dawkins quote that talks about uh, from his book River Out of Eden. And Richard Dawkins writes, on the contrary, if the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, meaningless tragedies like the crashing of this bus are exactly what we should expect, along with equally meaningless good fortune. Such a universe would be neither evil nor good in intention. It would manifest no intentions of any kind. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. As the unhappy poet A.E. Hausman put it, for nature, heartless, witless, nature will neither know nor care. Dawkins goes on, DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Oof. I mean, you look at the kind of universe painted by a solely scientific view of the world and what we get back is a world that is so out of tune with everything we think we know and all of our human sensibilities and the way we think about value and meaning that it really makes you ask the question or makes me ask the question is this an adequate epistemology is this an adequate way of gaining knowledge by itself and right. that's what scientism is is saying this by itself is all we need. Eventually, we will discover everything by means of the scientific method. Right. And that's not to say that science is a detriment and or there's no value. Like, that's an absurd thing to say. But the idea that it's the only way, that's, I think, what we're trying to push back against and, and trying to question. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And Dan, in your quote, it touched on reductionism, which is basically, you said it, it kind of like took away life in yeah, an attempt to study, deconstructs and, life yeah. in an attempt to look at like the itty bitty bits of it. So it's like, Dan, um, instead of being a human, we would look at you as like a collection of cells. And I think that's common in reductionism too. My dad is a doctor and he talks very commonly about how doctors don't see a patient as a human, but it's very easy, especially after years in the practice, to look at them as a set of problems. Yes. Reductionism is a major problem with scientism. You can't go on reducing things forever. Think of the example of chocolate. (laughs) You can easily give a chemical explanation for how my saliva and taste buds interact with chocolate to describe the experience of eating chocolate. But even though that scientific description is true, it doesn't capture the chocolate experience. (laughs) Right. What What it is about chocolate, the phenomenon of chocolate you're not going to get from an empirical look at it. Right. When we complicate it with all the entanglements of our lives, it, it, I might actually like chocolate because it reminds me of a birthday cake my mom used to make for me, or it represents a considerate gift from a friend, or I might like chocolate because everybody else around me likes chocolate, and I feel like I should like chocolate in order to fit in with them. I mean, all these other complexities of real human life get left behind in reductionism. And what we're left with is a factual description, but it's not the whole experience. It's not the whole truth. It's devoid of humanity. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's the problem with scientism is it dehumanizes. We want to make a clear distinction between science and scientism. Science is the process of gaining this knowledge through the scientific method, where scientism is saying that sort of knowledge is the only knowledge that really matters. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're calling into question here. Another interesting point about this is that if the only knowledge that's worthwhile is knowledge that comes from the scientific method, then the scientific method itself is not valid because the scientific method is not derived from the scientific method. Right. Mm -hmm. And one needs logic for a lot of the intuitions that arise from the moment of data collection and analysis to inferring theories or inferences to the best explanation. And so logic itself is not provable through the scientific method. So it's just simply not adequate to comprehensively describe or shed light on everything that we need to know about in our world. Back to that point on reductionism, I have this sweet quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, Up to that point, the kind of explanation which explains things away may give us something, though at a heavy cost. But you cannot go explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. Hmm. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Science can provide us incredible insights and useful knowledge that really do help us understand the physical world, but it's not capable of explain everything. I mean, what's the science of love? And it, you look at human human interaction. I mean, think about people. People are illogical, contradictory, mm-hmm. inconsistent. We're unpredictable. Sometimes we do incredibly altruistic things. And other times, 
We do incredibly selfish things. And there is no equation that you can write that is going to adequately predict what people are going to do, which is why science is no good at history. Because yeah. history is the record mm -hmm. of what humans have done in the past. And people are always doing... It's irrational. Irrational things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let's bring in the Christian perspective here and see what that can say to us in regards to science and scientific knowledge. I think the first thing to recognize is that since the Bible was all written before the advent of the scientific method and our modern understanding of science, it doesn't interact with the subject at all. Mm. It talks about phenomena from the perspective of somebody on earth pretty much always. So, for example, the Bible will say the sun rises. Well, the sun doesn't really rise. Right. Mm. The earth spins. The sun does not rise. But from the perspective of someone standing on earth, the sun does rise. And right. so the sun rises from one point of view and from another point of view, the earth spins. Both are really true. Right. It's just a matter of perspective, right? A lot of the criticisms of the Bible can easily be avoided if we recognize that the Bible is not trying to give a scientific description. What it's doing is describing phenomena from an earth point of view. What the Bible says about what science calls nature, the Bible calls creation, what it says about it is that creation itself testifies to God's glory, that mm -hmm. to study the creation is to gain insight on the Creator, just like studying a painting or a work of art gives you a perspective of the artist who created it and an appreciation for that person. And so... I have a, a verse here from Psalm 8. It says, Psalm 8, 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist is describing nature as the work of God's fingers. The moon and the stars. I mean, it's a beautiful description. Mm. Now, the psalmist, I bet if you cornered him and you said, Hey, do you think God has fingers? He would probably laugh at you and be like, what a dumb question. Yeah, this is a poetic way of looking at it. Like even the poet that Richard Dawkins quoted, no, there is no music to DNA, but we understand what he's saying when he says we dance to its music. So as a result of the Bible's pro-creation perspective, it was actually a biblical worldview that ended up giving birth to science because... Scientists who were mostly Christians at this time, they were looking for the laws by which God governed the universe. And they figured that as God's moral laws are fixed, so would his physical laws be fixed. And therefore, it would be a good idea to go out and do experiments and try to discover what his laws are. So going along with the idea of belief in God leading to science there was a discovery that Albert Einstein made when he came up with his equations for general relativity that the universe was probably not static. And from ancient times, most people thought the universe was more or less just always here. And Einstein just intuited that 
his equation must be off. And so he came up with a little constant to put in there, uh, what we might call a fudge factor, so that his equation would be compatible with a steady-state universe. But then later on, we discovered through Edwin Hubble that the universe really was expanding, which then scientists extrapolated backwards to this idea of a Big Bang. And even the words Big Bang themselves were coined by a, uh, a critic of Christianity because he felt like the whole idea smacked of ex nihilo, which is the idea that God creates the universe out of nothing. And so he mockingly called this theory the Big Bang to ridicule it. And that's the name that stuck. <laughs> it caught on. And now, you know, sort of like the sophisticated scientist will be up there in his white lab coat saying, well, we know the Big Bang, yada, yada, yada. Right. And <laughs> nobody thinks a second thing about it. But yet there's the Bible in thousands of manuscripts for thousands of years proclaiming the same simple truth that in many ages was ridiculed. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do you mean beginning? Everyone knows this universe has just always been here. It's inconceivable that the universe would have a beginning. Mm -hmm. And yet, science has discovered that it does have a beginning. And, and they call it the Big Bang. So I, I like to, when I, uh, when I talk to people about Genesis 1-1, I say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bang! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fingerprints of God. And, and, and if, if there is a, a Big Bang, then you need a big banger. Mm -hmm. you, you need somebody to light the explosion, right? Yeah. I think there's also this idea that's just sort of accepted and not really ever scrutinized in, in our culture today. And, you know, we're talking here about seeing the filter that science and religion have been at war with one another. If you take a historical look at, at that idea, it doesn't hold up. Intuitively, you would think, yes, because religion, there's the notion that religion is subjective and prone to human interference. And, and, and it is, of course, throughout Christian history, there, there have been human elements and pagan elements and Greek philosophical elements that have diluted and, and perverted the message. But, you know, looking at science and religion as sort of opposing forces, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up under scrutiny. You remind me of this great book by Jeffrey Kapersky called The Physics of Theism. I heard him interviewed on Dale Tuckey's fine podcast, the Trinity's podcast, and Kapersky talks about these different myths in the first chapter of his book. He talks about the idea that ever since the Catholic Inquisition tortured Galileo, science and religion have been at war, or the second one he mentions is that everyone thought the world was flat until Christopher Columbus proved otherwise, <laughs> and that the scientific revolution is what freed Europe from the grip of religion. But Kapersky points out, actually, none of these are true at all. The Catholic Inquisition did not torture Galileo, and what he was in trouble for was, if you really study it, he made fun of the Pope. Mm -hmm. And you just don't make fun of the Pope. And his ideas were tied more towards the Protestant ideas that were very controversial in that time. And there were quite a few Catholic scientists that actually thought Galileo was right and agreed with him. Mm. In other words, I'm not saying it's right what the Catholic Inquisition mm -hmm. did. They put him under house arrest. But the point is, this situation has been blown way out of proportion mm -hmm. to what it really was. And people knew for centuries before that the earth wasn't flat before Columbus. I mean, it's, that's just a historical fact. And this other idea that science freed Europe from the grip of religion, honestly, what freed Europe from the grip of religion 
is a whole cultural movement that is so complicated and so much bigger than the scientific revolution that it would take too much time to explain here. But it has to do with a movement called humanism and the whole idea of getting back to the sources and the Protestant Reformation, which called into question the authority of the church to determine for people what they should believe, as well as the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. I mean, there, there are huge different cultural waves. The, the scientific revolution is just one of them. And the scientific revolution was brought about by religious people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So obviously they didn't bring it about to get rid of religion. They mm -hmm. believed in religion. I have a number of quotes by scientists. The one I want to mention here is the one by Charles Darwin himself, who is usually singled out as the most anti-religion person, or at least his idea of evolution is. And he writes, another source of conviction in the existence of God connected with reason and not with the feelings, impresses me as having much more weight. This follows from the extreme difficulty, or rather impossibility, of conceiving this immense and wonderful universe, including man, in his capacity of looking far backwards and far into futurity as the result of blind chance or necessity. Can you believe Darwin said <laughs> yeah. that it's ridiculous to think that humans came about because of blind chance? And then he goes on, when thus reflecting, I feel compelled to look to a first cause, having an intelligent mind, and in some degree analogous to that of man. And I deserve to be called a theist, not <laughs> atheist, but right. a theist, yeah. a believer -E in God. Right. There's a mythbuster right there. Charles Darwin calls himself a believer in God. Charles Darwin himself says he doesn't believe everything can come about by blind chance. Or necessity. That's one of many examples of scientific truths that have been discerned that have their origins in a Christian in a Christian scientist, Johannes Kepler, discovering the laws of planetary motion. He said, you know, those laws are within the grasp of the human mind. God wanted us to recognize them by creating us after his own image so that we would share in his own thoughts. I think that's awesome, almost that idea of like his approach to science almost being a form of worship mm. to use your mind as God intended. Even Albert Einstein, who, who wasn't a Christian, but I think he said that science was thinking God's thoughts after him, mm -hmm. something, something to that effect. And so this idea of looking at the painting to appreciate the painter, right. I mean, we look at the book of Scripture to see the mind of God, and then we look at the book of nature to see his laws and how he governs the physical universe. I mean, it's just two different realms by which we can access God's magnificence and his glory. And true science and true theology should never come into conflict because if God's the creator, then it makes sense that he would know what he's talking about. Uh, now, I know historically there are scientific issues, and we can do later podcasts on those if, if people are interested in looking at them. But I think from a a methodological point of view, there's no reason to assume that there is going to be a conflict here. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have um, the mistaken idea that it's mutually exclusive to be a devoted scientist and a devoted believer. But we have examples of many such groundbreaking thinkers um, throughout, throughout history who were in fact passionate in both fields. Max Planck said he's the uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist who worked on quantum theory. He said there can never be any real opposition between religion and science. For the one is the complement of the other. 
Every serious and reflective person realizes, I think, that the religious element in his nature must be recognized and cultivated if all the powers of the human soul are to act together in perfect balance and harmony. And indeed, it was not by accident that the greatest thinkers of all ages were deeply religious souls. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he said it, not me. I mean, this is a, a man who was a father of discovering quantum theory. I mean, he's, he's right there on the cutting edge of it with Niels Bohr. You know, even before the 50s when they got the particle accelerators really going, he, he's already doing the theory that later on is going to bear out in the experimentation. I mean, absolutely brilliant guy. And what does he say? He says... We need harmony in our souls, and there's no real problem here. And if you look at quantum theory, just by the way, it's a crazy world. Counterintuitive things happen all over the place. So, I mean, the universe is way more complicated than most people recognize anyhow. And the more we've learned, the more it points to God's genius, God's incredible precision and robustness of design and creativity to work yeah and creativity mm -hmm. for things to work the way they do and we have a god that loves to be explored and loves to be sought after and that's a whole part of god that we haven't discovered for centuries and now as we get deeper into science that we've never explored before you can picture god kind of looking down at us and being like yeah they're getting it yeah it's like he's he's got it there the whole time just waiting for us like yeah wait till they come up with a way to look at the world on a very small scale, it's going to blow them away. <laughs> you know, he's just got that little bomb ready for us for all this time waiting for us to discover it. Or wait until they discover the black hole. I think that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Even cells, you know what I mean? Like looking through the microscope for the first time, God's like, you found it. Or when we put the telescopes in outer space so it didn't have the atmosphere to look through right. and we discovered how many billions and trillions of stars mm. there were more than we could ever imagine there were they focused the telescopes on a completely black part of space and they let it expose over a couple of days and when the film comes back it's full of specks of light yeah <laughs> it's just unbelievable so at this time i want to bring on some points that john lennox makes the professor of mathematics at the university of oxford and I really appreciate his perspective because he talks about faith and reason in a really simple yet profound way. This question of the relationship of faith to reason is one that one comes up against all the time. And the question is often put as if faith and reason were opposed. That, to my mind, is nonsense. It's coupled with an impression that people get that faith is something that occurs only in religious situations and therefore isn't worth talking about. Richard Dawkins talks about faith heads, or roughly equivalent to cloth heads, I suppose, and that reason is associated with science and therefore we take it seriously. Well, that is to make an error in both directions. Firstly, faith and reason walk hand in hand in both science and theology. So that we need to unpack this just a little bit. Faith, of course, our English word comes from the Latin word fides, which means trust. And in its normal usage, faith, reason and evidence 
are words that belong very much together. If I go into my bank manager with a project of making money, the issue for the bank manager is, can he place his faith in me? Can he trust me? Now, he will want reasons to trust me. He want evidence on which to base his faith in me. And he will ask me a whole series of very penetrating questions in order to see whether his faith is justified. And that applies right across the board. When we say we have faith in something, we trust it, we believe in it, the next logical question is, what reasons have you got? What evidence have you got for believing in it? So if I say God is the creator of the universe, you are perfectly justified in saying, what reasons have you got? So that we need to distinguish faith from blind faith. What makes this discussion very complex is that many of the new atheists regard all faith as blind faith. But that is absolute nonsense. A man's faith in his wife is not blind. I even discussed this with Richard Dawkins and he quite rightly gave me many reasons why he has faith in his wife. That is, we immediately see that that kind of faith can have reasons. It is evidence-based faith, but it is nonetheless faith. So that to say that all faith is blind faith is simply wrong in using faith in its general context, but it's also wrong using faith in its specifically religious context. The early scientists and many contemporary scientists weren't fools in putting their faith in God because they believed there was evidence for it. And it's interesting that in the part of the New Testament that is devoted to explaining what faith is, one of the major books, that is the book we call the Gospel by the Apostle John, he says that he has written, collected together all this evidence, and I quote, these things are written that you might believe, that is, have faith in, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. In other words, John is not asking us to put blind faith in Jesus. It's the exact opposite. He said, here's the evidence I've collected as an eyewitness, and this evidence forms the basis on which you can rest your faith. That is, he is appealing for evidence-based faith. It is, of course, the fact there is such a thing as blind faith, and it's very dangerous, particularly when it's coupled with unscrupulous religious authority, as we see in 9-11, the blind faith of those that drove the airliners into the Twin Towers in New York. That is blind faith, and it is to be roundly condemned. And I will agree entirely with the New Atheists in condemning it, but I will not agree with them that that is the only kind of faith there is. Evidence-based faith is something that Josh McDowell uh, makes a big part of his ministry. He's an apologist who looks at the evidence that there is for believing in Christianity. This idea of evidence-based faith is something that I hold very dear uh, to myself as well, because I don't want to believe something just for the sake of believing it, but I want to believe it because there's evidence that points towards it. And not that I'm just taking a leap into the dark, but I'm taking a leap into something um, that's been explored and has good evidence for the reason I decide to take that leap. 
Yeah, I don't think anywhere does the scripture ask you to take a leap into the dark. Mm -hmm. What it does is it gives you evidence and that evidence and that rationality or reasoning builds you a bridge. Now, I do believe that faith does require you to take a leap, but it's not a leap into the dark. It's not blind faith. That whole idea of, and this phrase, blind faith, being used as a weapon against Christians. If you talk to a competent Christian about why they believe what they believe, ostensibly they would be able to tell you, and they would be able to tell you about inquiries that they've made and questions that they've had and doubts that they've had. And looking at those doubts, that's not somebody that is taking faith you know, blindly. That's somebody who, who looks at it and cultivates their own belief, and cultivating your belief strengthens your belief. What's so interesting about that, too, is that Jesus himself didn't ask people to just believe in him. Mm -hmm. He said, believe in me because of my works. He, he would point to the miracles that he did. The and, evidence, if you will. Yeah, the mm -hmm. evidence. And then he said, well, for example, John ten thirty seven. if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. What about that? Yeah. If I'm not yeah. doing it, if I'm not doing the works of God, don't believe me. That's somebody that's not coercing people to believe a certain way over against the evidence that's like somebody is saying look if i'm not doing what the works of god don't believe me but if i do them even though you do not believe me believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and i am in the father or in john 14 10 he says do you not believe that i am in the father and the father is in me the words that i say to you i do not speak on my own authority but the father who dwells in me does his works believe me that i am in the father and the father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus is consistent here, whether he's talking to outsiders in the first case in John 10, or talking to his own inner group of disciples in John 14, he's saying, look at my works, guys. That's why you should believe in me. So I, I, in other words, I think Christianity is not anti-evidence, and this, this whole idea of belief over against evidence is not at all a genuine Christian perspective so then then where does that you know in non-christian circles where does that idea that people say if you're a pastor a pastor wants you to believe this no matter what the, the evidence says where does that idea come from i remember reading in a preaching book many years ago there was a, a preacher who had a manuscript that he was using and it said in the manuscript this is a weak point pound pulpit here <laughs> uh, it was obviously a, a funny story to uh, make the point. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah, to make the point that you shouldn't do that. But I think when somebody says you need to take it on authority, it's because of one of two things. Either it's because it's a weak point and they know it, and mm -hmm. there isn't anything holding it up, or because they just can't be bothered to provide you with the evidence. And I feel like that happens a lot with parenting where you say to the kids... Because I said so. Because right. I said so. Go to your room. Why? Because yeah. I said so, right? Yeah. And you know the reasons why, but you can't be bothered to bring forth all the evidence and mm -hmm. make all the explanation as to why discipline should be done and you shouldn't just be able to do whatever you want, right? And so, I mean, there are arenas in which authority is appropriate. For example, if a, if a police officer pulls you over, you have to pull over. He has authority over you mm -hmm. on the roadway. And if you don't pull over, more police cars will arrive. Yeah. And then the helicopter. And then... And then you're on the news. Then you're on the news. <laughs> <laughs> and when you did get pulled over, it's not going to be pretty then. Oh. So, you know, I think there is a place for authority. And obviously, God speaks with authority. Mm -hmm. But God also engineered us with this inquisitiveness, 
with this rationality that's able to weigh evidence against other evidence and to make decisions. And for whatever reason, God has honored that freedom to, for us to choose throughout Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is coming a day where there's going to be judgment. But until that day arrives, people are free to choose what they want to choose. Yeah, there's still going to be consequences, but he's not forcing people to choose him. Mm-hmm. I've been intrigued by accounts of inquiring minds in the Bible, and especially when people ask evidence from God. I thought of three cases, Moses wanting to see the glory of God, mm-hmm. and Gideon kind of testing out, is this really from God, laying the, uh, yeah. the, fleece, the fleece out? They tested God, and then finally Thomas, um, I want to see, I want to feel. And in every instance, they're given that evidence, and then they in turn believe. And God doesn't yell at them. He doesn't even appeal to his own you know, divine authority. He gives them the evidence, and then they in turn step out in faith. Yeah, and there are plenty of times, too, when people see, for example, Jesus doing miracles, and what they conclude is not, oh, he must be a messenger of God. They conclude, oh, that guy, he's, he's doing it through demonic influence yeah, or he's he's a charlatan <laughs> mm-hmm. a trickster you know i mean there are different positions people have taken on what jesus was doing many of them did not believe and many of those who believed turned away later on once they heard him teaching <laughs> so, <laughs> or you know in the day of pentecost when the, when the apostles spoke in tongues and people thought well these men are full of new wine mm-hmm. you know like plenty of doubters and plenty of people that were there for these events yeah i think that's another good point about doubt that you brought up earlier that traditionally Christians we we fear doubt we don't like doubt but doubt does incredible work if we allow it to mm-hmm. in our lives because when you doubt something it puts you in a situation where if you face it you will either discover that what you're doubting really is something you need to let go of because it's not true or you find better evidence than you had before, and you're more convinced of it. Now you're impervious to doubt in that right. area. It's like metal being folded against itself to become stronger. You talk about blacksmithing, and, and that's why I say I don't think there's anything wrong with doubt. I don't. Where you run into trouble is if you doubt and you allow those doubts to fester, and you don't take the time and effort to investigate those doubts and look at what the scripture says and look at any applicable scientific and weigh that side of it and come to a conclusion. I mean, that takes work. And... It says in the Bible that we're responsible to work out our own salvation. We're mm. responsible to work out our own faith and to figure these things out. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, you know, accept all of these things because I am God and I am the creator and I created you, so accept them and, and don't ever have any doubts. It's just not, that's an idea, I think, of the ignorant, blind faith Christian that is... It's uh, a caricature. Yeah, it's a caricature and it's not in any way accurate. I do think there are those believers who do feel threatened by science and kind of react by like kind of retreating into hyper-spirituality. And they would say, in the case of having doubt, they would not tell you to go inquire and do the research. They would tell you, oh, just throw more faith at that. Well, faith is good and faith is from God, but you, you do have to learn a little bit from both sides. We do walk with God and we do walk by the Spirit. All of that is good and we want the faith that God gives us, but we also want to have minds that are not afraid. The, the truth has nothing mm. to fear, as you say, Sean. You should <laughs> yeah. not be afraid to step out and inquire and learn more. Yeah. So in conclusion, Christianity is not anti-science, and I don't think science needs to be anti-Christianity. I think there are different realms that we can gain knowledge from. We can gain knowledge from the scientific method. We can gain knowledge from Scripture, from Revelation. 
We can gain knowledge from logic. We can gain knowledge from our emotions and relationships and history and intuition. I mean, there are all different ways that we can gain knowledge. And to limit it to just science, I think, is just too narrow-minded. Doing yourself a disservice, I think. There's a whole segment of knowledge and learning and intuition and human behavior and that is discounted a lot of times by science. And, and really, if science's goal is to get to the truth of things, to the essential kernel of truth of why something exists in the universe, then science should be more than open to other forms of inquiry. Mm -hmm. I, I would even go so far as to say that if science is going to be true to itself yeah. and its origins then it should take a different posture than what you see typically today, which is rather than perceiving Christianity as a threat or religion as a threat, it should see it as something that can help it because science needs a value system to direct it. Nitroglycerin can you be used to help somebody with a heart condition or to make a bomb to blow up people. Yeah. Science needs some sort of value system to help it do good in the world. Mm -hmm. And Christianity is right there and ready to do that. And in fact, historically, that's the value system that worked with science in the past and that gave birth to science. Christianity, you know, the moral system is not this super complicated thing. It's love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think when science can abide by those rules, then it's, it fits within a certain realm where it's going to maximally benefit humanity. Well, that's all for today. We'll be back next week, hopefully. Thanks, guys. It's been real. Sayonara. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. And as always, please give us feedback on uh, restitudio.org. We'll see you next time when we discuss consumerism. Stay tuned. <laughs>